Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. Dr. Cindy Banyer here, candidate for Congressional District 19 in Florida. That's Southwest Florida, Cape Coral and Fort Myers, all the way down to Naples. I am a mom and small business owner, and I care about our water, our health, and our community. And I am joining you here today on April 9th, 2020, to reflect on what's going on in the world around us and to tell you a little bit about what life is like being a congressional candidate and single mom of three on day six of a stay-at-home order in Florida. And of course, for us in Florida and for my family in particular, this it's been much longer than six days. We decided to self-isolate almost a month ago because of the health problems that my youngest daughter has. She has already had respiratory failure, had a rare blood disease, and also immune problems from the treatment related to that. And she is somebody who's exceedingly high risk of complication to contract the virus. So we've been staying home to keep her safe in particular. As you can imagine, this has thrown a wrench into my congressional campaign plans. First and foremost, it's created this incredibly challenging situation around qualifying the, ban- the for the ballot as a grassroots candidate. And what that means in the state of Florida is that we have the opportunity to qualify by petition and or paying a qualification fee, both of which are exceedingly high compared to other states around the country. And in fact, my team and I were doing some research on this today, and we have one of the highest qualification you know, bars across the country. Other uh, states are far more reasonable in terms of the number of petitions that they require and the amount that they would require if that doesn't work. And we are one of the only states that still has a primary coming up that has not made accommodations to their candidates in relation to how they can get on to the ballot. So, for instance, New York State has already decided to, they actually just called it right away. They said, great, turn in whatever you have and we'll only require 30% of either the fee and or the petitions. Vermont just waived the fee, which is actually what we had been asking for here. So that component for me has taken up a lot of my time. So I have been putting together a bipartisan statewide coalition of candidates that is now grown to about 50 candidates. And that's one of the reasons why I was not able to uh, do a podcast last week, because we had been doing additional press releases and press conferences trying to coordinate that campaign across the state of Florida. We have congressional candidates all the way down to sheriff and county commission candidates all over the state. So that's been a very fascinating experience for me to be leading this kind of coalition, but also be coordinating it as well. And um, 
we did get a small, let's call it a small victory on Friday, where the Secretary of State had released an emergency rule saying that they will allow us to not have to submit original signatures, sometimes called wet signatures, but that they would allow us to do copies of signatures, you know, i.e. digital signatures um, through, you know, things like DocuSign or JPEGs or whatever, um, which is very, very good for our down ballot candidates. And that's something that they kind of immediately started to work on. However, it didn't mean anything for us as congressional candidates because our petition deadline had since passed. So it didn't mean one bit of anything to us. And so we kept fighting. And actually, even all the way down and across the coalition, there was a couple people, like I said, that were excited and trying to get to work. But pretty unanimously, the coalition agreed that it didn't go far enough. We had lost a lot of time. And even if campaigns have the capacity to switch over technologically, right, to be able to run a campaign of a field campaign, essentially digitally, that it would, you know, it's going to be priced out for some folks, whether or not they have that support is going to be a challenge. And the whole point of the petitioning process is to have an avenue to get onto the ballot that doesn't include having buckets of money, right? Because if we had buckets of money, this wouldn't be a problem. And in fact, candidates who have buckets of money don't like what we're doing at all. And they say flip things to reporters like, oh, well, you should have just been prepared. All right. And I'm going to go ahead and ask that particular candidate, you know, Representative Dane Eagle um, in the Florida House, um, you know, who show me, go ahead and show me who is demonstrably prepared for this global pandemic, which agency, which organization, which country was ready, which one show them to me. I'd love to see them. I'd love to learn from that example of how to be so amazingly prepared for a global pandemic to shut down the economy and to drive us all into our homes to save the lives of our neighbors and our loved ones, that they would have known that this was happening and have tried to get everything 100% ready months in advance. I- I'm waiting for that, Dane. So you can go ahead and email me at vote at com. You can give me that example of who was ready for this because I'm really interested in learning from them about how I can improve myself. However, from what I've seen around the world, even the best prepared of us, even the scientists and the public health experts, they knew things were coming. They knew things could get bad, but no one is prepared for this. And that's what makes the argument so incredibly ludicrous is that, yes, of course, in the perfect world, we would have already had all of our signatures and it would have been no problem. And we would have had a lot of money in the bank and we could have just written the check and have it be a no big deal. And I guess that's the position that you absolutely are in. If you are, you know, actually an establishment candidate who has, you know, let's say a hundred grand from the local party in your bank account on the first day that you announce your candidacy, you know, that's a really convenient position for you to be in. However, those of us who are not establishment candidates, those of us who are not personally wealthy, those of us who are just grassroots candidates trying to make our communities a better place, we don't have that. But that doesn't mean that we're not suited for office. That doesn't mean we don't have something to bring to the table. And that certainly doesn't mean that when we get to the general election, we're not going to wallop your sorry by up and down, Dane Eagle. Doesn't mean that. It means that we don't have that establishment. And if there's anything that Americans love, 
they love the story of an underdog. And so that's what I'm fighting for right now. That's been my kind of call to action as a stay-at-home candidate. Of course, I've been doing all the things that all of us stay-at-home candidates have been doing, including starting up this podcast and virtual town hall meetings and Facebook live sessions and, you know, lots of emails, the texting campaign, you, you name it. So a lot of these things were already part of what I was doing, but I am at a, an additional like disadvantage when it comes to this, because I am not only just forced to be home, you know, for the good of the order, so to speak, but I am home taking care of my three small children, one of whom has underlying health conditions. So I don't get to, you know, gallivant around town and be like, here I am feeding the hungry and, oh my gosh, I'm going to go pick up all the, you know, fruit from the fields and send it to the food bank. I mean, not to diminish those efforts because I am actually, I think it's a fantastic thing, the folks that were able to do those things. However, I am not just somebody who's watching coronavirus you know, through the lens of what kind of PR stunts I can do to make myself look good while pretending it doesn't exist, which I feel is where most of my Republican competitors are kind of looking at it. But I, I mean, I am not leaving my house unless I really have to. I think it's been three or four times in total um, that anyone from my house has left the premises in the past month. So um, like I said, it's not, it's not just a thing that I'm watching affect other people. It's something that I'm, you know, is affecting me. So I'm a, but I'm doing a good job, I think as a candidate, trying to get my word out, get my voice out and uh, connect with people in the same way that I have been able to, uh, and just keep doing it more and more. I will say, though, that this kind of call to action around the ballot process has really um, it's been a very important thing for me. And frankly, it's not only just because I'm worried about myself qualifying for the ballot. I'm I'm feeling very confident that I'm going to be able to qualify for the ballot one way or the other. The really bigger issue for me is that this is about being stewards of our democratic process. We in a very functional way, expect our government to steward that process, to come up with ways that candidates can get on the ballot that seem reasonable and fair, that there aren't undue burdens and barriers on candidates, and that we continue on in these processes. There's so many little kind of little things that go into governance that a lot of people don't really fully recognize, right? There are these procedural things and rules and, you know, the the process of how you get the ballots from the state to the supervisors of elections and, and all these little steps that are involved in it. And, you know, if we let this go, because in my case in particular, which is not uncommon across the state of Florida, there were many candidates who were looking to submit their petitions by the deadline of March 23rd that found themselves in the position where their local supervisors of elections, the place they have to turn the ballots into or the petitions into were closed and not just closed on that day, but had been closed for essentially the, you know, nearly two weeks before that. And some of them you could get through to some of you couldn't. In my case, one of the counties that are in my district 
we got through, my team got through on a phone call to them and they said, okay, great. Um, you know, I guess you can kind of drop them off, but we're, we can't pro- promise you that we'll be able to process them. And I guess we can give you an appointment and you can just drop them off inside. They didn't really seem like they had any idea how this was going to go, but that they would accept them and then maybe something would happen. Right. And then the other co- county just never even picked up the phone. They were just closed, you know? And so these are small things, right, that have happened along the way in the midst of this amazing, like, amazingly complicated and scary and difficult time amongst the coronavirus outbreak and the, you know, the decline in the economy from that. So I understand that it's not necessarily top of mind. But I've kind of put myself in as being the person who's watching this and the person that's coordinating, organizing around it, because if they're willing to allow this to happen, I mean, essentially allowing no path in my case for me to uh, qualify by petition, none, you know, with two weeks leading up to it and buckets full of petitions in my possession you know, no way to even submit those or anything like that. No guidance from the local supervisors of elections, no guidance from the state division of elections, seemingly no care at all that this incredibly important piece of qualifying for the ballot came and went without even so much of an acknowledgement. Okay. And so this began in me the desire to hold them accountable, to hold the state accountable for being those stewards of our democratic process. They cannot just allow offices to close and people to go into, you know, shelter recommended, you know, basically on fear of their the life of themselves and their loved ones. And that just be a big shrug to, oh, well, I guess it was just whoever had the most money in their bank account that gets to be the congressman now, right? That's not, that's not how this is supposed to work. And frankly, if they're letting that slide, what else are they willing to let slide at this point? Um, I'm very worried about our elections process overall in the state of Florida. We have not had a good, robust system in place. Um, It's very clear from the communications, even after this rule, by the way, came out, they, they took the old text of the candidate handbook and they like took a screenshot of it and they like just do strike throughs of the, the language and then put new language in and then put that out there. And from what I understand, they then just kind of sent a communication to the supervisors of elections and then sent a communication to the candidate saying, hey, this rule has changed. Here's the link. There's no further interpretation on it, right? There is no like, okay, so what does it mean now that you can that your signature doesn't have to be an original signature? So what does that mean? And many of the candidates in our coalition were going and and asking for clarification from the the attorneys at this uh, Secretary of State, and some of them got answers on it, but even those answers were not well distributed amongst the the supervisors of elections. So candidates, depending on their jurisdiction, are hearing different things. How is this being a good steward of our process? How is this going to help the voters of Florida have a choice when it comes down to our elections this fall? I don't believe it is. And I believe that there's more to come on this. So depending on how long the 
issues around coronavirus happen to stick around for us, how many things are they going to let slide? How many? And so there's one thing that I've done, at least with building this coalition of now about 50 candidates across the state of Florida, is that we at least have a network of people who care about the process. And this is bipartisan as well, but that are willing to stand up and say, we need to make sure that voters can have a choice and they're willing to stand up and make sure that these these rules, these procedures um, that are very, very intentionally designed to keep people off the ballot, by the way, absolutely <laughs> designed to do that. Um, you know, that is, you know, the point. And that is also the issue that we're raising, too. So it goes beyond today. It goes beyond this group of candidates. It goes right to the point that Florida has exceedingly high qualification requirements for candidates to get on the ballot. And it's not right. And they are also not being good stewards of our democracy by letting rules lapse and not having a way for candidates to get on the ballot when we are in such extenuating circumstances. So I'm going to say that's the uh, that's the end of my story for today on that part of what's going on. I did want to just share a little bit about the kind of rest of the world and the sentiment here in Florida. You know, we just got news that in the last week we have had roughly uh, nearly 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment. That number is going to grow. In the state of Florida alone, we've had amazingly high amounts of problems with our website that processes unemployment for the state. Now, this website had been designed and paid for by the Rick Scott administration, Rick Scott, who is now our senator. But the Rick Scott administration had basically designed on purpose this website to be terrible, to be exceedingly challenging for people to get through and to basically not function and keep bumping people out because he did not want his unemployment numbers right after the 2009 recession to look that bad. So he really, and this is the story of what happens in Florida. I, I don't know if it happens in other places quite as much as it happens here, but it's another way for people who are in charge to artificially make themselves look like they're doing a better job or artificially make their economy look like it's doing better than it is by giving people a haphazard way to apply for the needed help that they have. But that's how they track those metrics. Right. So it's um, but it's a legacy. It's a Rick Scott legacy. So thank you, Governor Skeletor, for giving us this horrible, horrible system that has left people across the state of Florida with uh, a ton of stress in an already stressful time, and many of whom have not had the ability to apply for their unemployment benefits after swiftly losing their job in this coronavirus outbreak. So this week we had watched Governor DeSantis say, oh, 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 well, we're going to fix it. We're going to, you know, get some additional, you know, whatever server, blah, 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 try to sound technical on there. And he rolled it out. And basically the next day, it still didn't work how it was supposed to. So I've heard today they actually built an entirely new website to fix the problem. Now, I understand that the first website cost $72 million, um, 
which is also a horrifyingly high price tag for something that doesn't work. But I guess if you're paying people to cover up your massive corruption, uh, the price tag is high. So the other things that happened in relation to unemployment in the state of Florida this past week was that, again, because the system crashed, they released paper unemployment, um, you know, documentation. I don't know. I was going to say ballot, but that's not clearly the right thing. The unemployment paperwork via actual paper. And there were distribution locations for this. There was one place in particular in Hialeah, which is outside Miami, where they were handing out this documentation. So you see hundreds of people standing in line to get this documentation. By the way, of course, we are all supposed to be at a stay-at-home order and in groups of less than 10 and six feet apart from each other. But these folks weren't. And they put themselves in danger and they put up an increased risk of community spread because they were so desperate to be able to get their documentation in to get the support they need to continue to support their family that they're willing to risk themselves in that. That is a direct result of the incredibly poor mismanagement of the Rick Scott administration here in Florida and his predecessor, Governor Skeletor. Um, I'm sorry, that Governor Skeletor is Rick Scott. Um, but also Governor DeSantis has not done anybody any favors either. So they have now released that on a PDF download and FedEx private company has stepped up saying, hey, anybody that wants to print this in the state of Florida and send it, we're happy to do that for free. So thank you to FedEx for stepping up and doing something when we have such a clear government failure here in the state of Florida. And in relation to how that looks across the nation. So here's what I'm saying about the numbers being artificially low and I think we're going to see an uptick. There are probably other states that are having this kind of turmoil. And I want to say that the numbers in Florida were very low compared to what the reality in the state of Florida is in terms of the likely, you know, million some odd people who actually lost their job over the past three weeks that you can expect to have a bunch more dumped in from Florida once they get their act together to actually process their unemployment claims or these poor people. Hopefully they don't just give up and because um, that would be terrible for their family. So that'll end that diatribe for today as well. But uh, I thought a few more things that I would share with you is honestly just what it is like to be a single mom at home 24 hours a day, seven days a week with three small children um, during this time. Um, I will say for the most part, it's fantastic. <laughs> I love my kids so much. Um, and we ha we're having a lot of fun and like super troopers. My two oldest kids have just absolutely ad adopt adapted to virtual school. Um, and I guess they've seen a pretty good model in me of how to work from home. So they were like pros at the Zoom meeting straight away. And frankly, they were they've even been very self-motivated. So they get into their platforms. My kids are first grade and fourth grade, but they get in, they do their thing, bada bing, bada boom. And um, for that, I'm just exceedingly grateful because I I literally couldn't handle it if I had to walk them through every single thing. So my big like shout out to the parents um, who either don't have a computer, don't have connectivity, don't have time, uh, 
and, you know, just can't actually manage, you know, trying to be your children's teacher during the day. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you um, on that. And in fact, we saw today that the school district is going to be handing out paper packets for the families who have not been able to successfully connect to their internet and in whatever, or they couldn't, they just don't have time to do it. I don't know, but it seems like a lot of uh, families don't have internet as well, despite the fact that we had companies trying to offer it. I think it just ends up the technological divide ends up being so big that given everything that's going on, people couldn't handle it. So, um, and kudos to the teachers and the, and the administrators in the school district for making that happen because it's quite obviously no small feat to to be you know handing out packets and figuring it out and, and hearing from the parents and um, I I have nothing but respect for the teachers and the administrators who have been doing this and thank you for that um, so I mean but now we have a situation where I my my littlest who's three used to go to a babysitter all day and you know she was able to kind of be a little lady around town and do all sorts of things and now she's here all day. And um, she's very creative and uh, mischievous, and she always finds amazing ways to destroy things uh, in the house. It's just, it's unbelievable how she can do this. And so now we've actually got like three of us, you know, the three other people who are here at this time, we're all doing our work. And so she's kind of like, all right, she gets the run of the house. Um, So just in the past few weeks since we've been in isolation, she has taken three different shades of my lipstick and painted the entire cabinet of the bathroom and herself with this while I'm on a conference call, of course. Um, she had done that. She uh, On another conference call, she had brought one of her baby dolls into my room. And um, all I heard was her singing sweetly with to the baby doll. It was um, a very sweet song, but somewhat creepy, too, because she was saying... Oh, baby, don't worry. You're going to sleep forever. You have a fever. How she ever intuited all of that, I cannot tell you. If it weren't so cute, I would probably be calling a priest at this point in time. (laughs) Um, But then I walk over after and, you know, again, it was another meeting, a little less formal than the one with the lipstick. But I walk over afterwards and she says, oh, mommy, I got paint on my blanket. And I go, why? why do you have paint on your blanket? Because the entire time she was singing the creepy fever baby song, she was painting the baby's face green on my bed. So there's a certain level of of creativity you have to get to that this morning. She was painting a Mr. Potato Head green in my bedroom. She also routinely uh, this week has decided to go through eight uh, clothing changes a day. She's practicing her life skills of getting her own clothes on. So that has also been exciting all over my house with the various clothes that she's found herself in. But um, (coughs) it's been just absolutely fascinating uh, to watch the things that she comes up with. And like I said, if she wasn't so sweet, I'd be a little bit more worried. But, um, you know, we are very fortunate um, as a family to have each other, to have internet, to have a home with a yard um, and and food that we can access. And I know that not everybody has that during this time. And my heart goes out to those folks and those folks who are in otherwise unstable 
circumstances as well. I know how challenging that can be. And um, so I just, you know, I'm fortunate and thankful for the situation that I have at this point. And, you know, my work overall is to try to make the lives better of everybody in Southwest Florida and the United States in consideration of all the special things that people may have in their homes that make them uniquely um, challenging. And I think that that we have a huge opportunity here overall in this country to really significantly rethink how we do business and how we treat people and what does it mean and why all these people have been advocating for things like living wage and universal basic income and universal health care. And it's not because like some people want to talk about it, it ends up being a something that somebody deserves. It's not about that. It's about that we need to be able to get people to a certain level so everything doesn't fall apart. And that's why we're doing all these things right now. Because if we let everything fall apart, we're going to have bigger problems than we can ever imagine. So I hope to be able to continue to, in you know, innovate around how we can move forward through this and come out the other side, a better country and a more stable country. Um, The last thing I want to talk about in terms of being a, you know, a self-isolated candidate and what it kind of looks like at this day and age in Florida is that we got the formal stay at home order from the governor last week that was to go into effect basically Friday, like 12.01 a.m. last Friday. And this was something that we had been advocating for across the state. Leaders up and down had been advocating for, but that there was a just a big hesitation by Governor DeSantis to actually implement. And that was very worrisome for a lot of people. We had seen our numbers rising really quickly on the par of other states like Michigan and Illinois, who a whole week earlier had already issued their stay-at-home order. DeSantis essentially said, I'll do it if Trump tells me to. The counties, he then punted to the counties, by the way, and then the counties said, well, you know, some of the counties took responsibility and issued stay-at-home orders. Other counties like mine and Collier, both of whom are in my district, they said, well, you know, if it was really serious, the governor would tell us to close. (laughs) So it's just, it was an incredibly frustrating, like, blame game of, well, who it will follow them or it really is their responsibility and not mine. It's just passing the buck round and round and round and round and round because nobody, uh, particularly amongst the Republicans, want to be help, you know, caught holding the bag of this thing that they know is going to bottom out the economy. Not to mention the fact that the longer we sit and pretend like it's not happening, the longer we're going to have to be in this stasis, the more it's going to hurt the economy. So it's just... It was a ridiculous, ridiculous um, game of passing the buck. So anyway, he finally did it. And then he said the next day, by the way, he signed an executive order preempting any um, thing that local governments had put in that contradicted what the state order did. And what that did, for instance, is allowed churches to continue to operate. And if you're in the state of Florida, there's this whole thing with preemption and home rule that just it really roiled all of the 
the local politicians and people who really think that municipalities and counties should be able to make their own rules. And, you know, I agree with them. And so it was a very ridiculous um, order. And he did it very on the slide the next day. Then by Friday, when we're actually like supposed to be starting this thing, it turns out that literally every business is essential. So every business can open and the whole, it never said explicitly that non-essential businesses had to close and that, you know, we're going to just, it didn't, you know, say everybody everywhere. Um, And, but oddly enough, by the way, it said that if you violate the order, you can get like a $500 fine and then you would be held without bond. So it really, it sent this really, really awful mixed messages to people as to whether or not, you know, what are we supposed to do? Are we really supposed to stay home? Are we really supposed to close our business? Um, And if we go out, are we going to go to jail forever because we don't get a bond? Like what, you know? Um, So it was, it was very, very poorly communicated. It was very poorly thought out. And there was clearly a lot of backpedaling um, from the administration uh, in the state of Florida on how to do this. The other things that were very, um, disheartening around this include the fact that one of our municipalities here in district 19 Marco Island yesterday decided that they were going to open two of their beaches. So, so this is why I titled this or wrote in the description for this uh, session today is that we're in day six, day six of a Florida stay at home order and already everyone is ready to call it quits. It was so bizarre. If I were to try to explain to you the, the feeling that we went through. Right. So for me, I was relieved. Oh my gosh. Friday, the stay at home order started. We got the notice on Wednesday that it was going to start on Friday last week. Amazing. Yes. So happy we're going to do this. Hopefully we can flatten the curve. We're going to get out of this. And everybody was going to take it serious. And, um, but it was botched. It was botched from top to bottom. <laughs> okay. It was botched in terms of leadership. It was botched in terms of what was going on. It was like a reluctant thing that the governor did, like at the behest of, you know, every single public health expert everywhere. And he was like, I guess I'll do it. But it was with, it was done without the kind of authority needed for people to care that literally we're six days in and nobody gives a shit and it's horrifying. And there was a, a really, and another thing that I was really on about last week is that our County, by the way, who voted twice, they had, they called two emergency meetings and both times decided to not do anything. Like it was just, they had the, the, it written, they were going to shut down. They were going to take the leadership on it. We have a very elderly population. We had community spread. We had one of the first, you know, younger people in the country to die. He had no pre-existing conditions. He was a DJ for spring break locations, which is another whole thing. Um, and, you know, but, you know, who cares, right, according to our local government. So they they just said, okay, we're not going to do anything about it. But they said, well, you know, we should probably think about getting people to stay home because they've taken this attitude that all of a sudden everybody 
is going to find it in their heart to be like civically inclined to stay home for the good of their neighbors, right? Like most people don't care at all on a regular day about their neighbors, right? About what happens to everybody in the community, right? If the dialogue around who is going to die during coronavirus tells you that at all, you should know that, right? That there's like, oh, it's just the the weakest people. Who cares? It's only 1%, you know? <laughs> who cares? They're going to die. That, those people, okay, our county has decided that they're going to have this really heartwarming social media campaign to get everybody to stay at home. Hashtag stay at home, SWFL. That was their response. And oddly enough, apparently nobody knows anything about messaging at all because they started this campaign in Lake County by having public officials take a photo of themselves out with the sign and the logo that says stay home Southwest Florida. Without any context, it's not like they're in a video saying, stay home for me because I got to work. It was just like, here's Officer Jim at the dock, you know, stay home, Southwest Florida. And it was like six, like a, you know, a whole montage of them. And for me, I'm like, and, they, and it wasn't just me. I was, you know, creeping in the con- uh, comments on their Facebook posts on it. And yeah, it was a bunch of people going, why is he out? Like, what is the point? And I just, I I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it because it was PR over policy. This is something I've grown to hate more than anything else right now. Um, I've, over the last several years of my work, I have seen good decisions, important reports, and important data go to the wayside in favor of PR. We are watching right now a massive pandemic take hold across the United States because PR was paramount compared to policy in people's lives. And it aggravates me so much to see this thing. They could have made a decision to keep people home, but they just threw up their hands and said, well, we can't, we can't have people, you know, we can't tell people to stay home. Uh, no, you can. That's kind of what you can do. Right. But This is so aggravating to have people punt on making a hard choice and then run a series of photos for people to say, oh, well, you should just stay home and be nice to your neighbors and stuff. And then you go down the street and everybody's just doing the same thing that they had done the whole time. Um, But, you know, a lot of people around town get to pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I'm a really good leader because I sponsored this. PR campaign to get people to stay home rather than making a decision that was, by the way, begged for, begged for by our public health officials, by the CEO of our major health system here. They begged them to close down weeks ago and they didn't. And it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And I will tell you for sure that there will never be a time in any sort of leadership position that I'm in where I will be choosing PR over policy and data. Never. I'll always choose people, always choose people. And um, won't be any smiling baloney photos of me trying to implore you to do something that I had every capacity as a leader to help you do. So that's going to bring me to the end of 
the session for today. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to me speak and record the amazing things that are going on in our day and age here. And really hope that you, if you find value in what I say and you think that I'm the type of person who should be helping to make decisions in this country, I would love for you to go ahead and check out my website. And uh, if you have any ability to support, that would be very, very helpful because grassroots candidates like me, we need every single dollar now more than ever, too, because we're not getting it. We're not getting it in the way that we used to. And people are hurting. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that we need leadership, real, honest leadership, not talking points, not PR moves. And we need it moving forward. And um, so if you have the ability or share this, share this podcast, um, tell people that I am here speaking truth to power, speaking on what's going on and my perspective as a regular person trying to get to Congress. If you think that's valuable, I would love to have your support. And in fact, you can call me, text me, send me uh, a message. Um, I would be more than happy to engage with you on that. You can send that information to me at vote at cindybanier.com. Send me a call or text at 239-351-5574. I'm listening. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyay.